as a young father, and also just at this time of year in January, uh, it's helpful to, to look back at the year that has passed and look forward to uh, the coming year. Uh, this, this season naturally brings uh, reflection to our minds. Uh, and uh, additionally, as a young father, uh, I look at my, my two sons. I have a, now a one-year-old and a four-week-old. And it just amazes me that each and every one of us was at one point like them. That we were all at one point helpless. We couldn't do a thing. Uh, we were all so tiny, so small. And it's just amazing to think about just time. How time goes by. That we were all once like that. Also this week I was... Uh, in the hospital a couple a couple different times visiting fred martin you know and we thank you for your prayers uh on his behalf and we have just a, a good report on his health improving uh, almost miraculously so as uh his kidneys were not functioning uh last week when i asked you to pray uh, among many other uh health issues that he was having and his kidneys have begun to function once more and he's out of the icu and uh recovering and we pray that he continues to uh, gain his strength. But for several days this week, it, it, it didn't look good for him. And what's amazing is just in, in my own mind, here I see the, the beginning of life uh, in my children and then also uh, the other end of life. Uh, and in the same way that we were all once little babes in need of help, in need of assistance, unable to do anything for ourselves, we will also one day face that road that, that leads to death. We will all come to that point at one time or another where this life ends and we go on into eternity. And that's not something that you probably think about often. It's not, it's not the most enjoyable subject to think about, death. But it is a reality. Uh, King Solomon uh, wrote in Ecclesiastes, says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now King Solomon wrote that as an old man, and, and as he reflected upon life and death and the meaning in life in Ecclesiastes. What I'd like to look at today with you uh, is a, a prayer written by another man who was on the edge of death. He knew his time was winding down. And so in Psalm 90, where I'd like you to turn with me this morning, we see the prayer of Moses. See Moses at the end of his days reflecting on the brevity of life. And as you look there at Psalm 90, we see that as a prayer of Moses, the man of God, this is, this is the oldest psalm in uh, the psalm book. 
Uh, This psalm was written uh, about 3,500 years ago. And it is likely that the background to him writing this psalm is Numbers 20. Numbers 20, uh, a lot happens. At the beginning of Numbers 20, Moses' sister Miriam dies. The one who would have been the one to, to guide his little basket over to Pharaoh's daughter so that Moses might grow up in Pharaoh's house rather than being killed by Pharaoh as Pharaoh sought to kill all the male children of Israel. So the beginning of Numbers 20, his sister dies. Shortly after that, Moses and his brother Aaron sin against the Lord in front of the whole congregation of Israel by striking the rock rather than speaking to it as God commanded. And God says, you treated me as if I wasn't holy. And God's judgment upon them for that was that they would not enter the promised land. And at the end of that chapter, Aaron passes away as the Lord in judgment took him. And it wasn't but maybe 30 days later that Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, moves on into eternity as well. And what's amazing is that those events of of Numbers 20, of his siblings passing away and, and Moses knowing and understanding that his time here on earth is limited is probably the, the background to his reflections in this prayer that we are going to read. And that as Moses writes this prayer, he's going to think deeply about the nature of God, the nature of man, and just the reality of time. He's going to compare the eternal God with mortal man And then he's going to come to certain conclusions about our life here on the earth. And it's going to be an amazing psalm. One pastor has said that only Isaiah chapter 40 can compare with this psalm for its presentation of God's grandeur and eternity over against the frailty of man. That's what's going to be compared and contrasted in this psalm this morning. And as we read this psalm, we're going to be confronted with our own mortality. That one day we will all pass from this life into the next. We're going to be confronted with our mortality and also our, our sinfulness. Now, how do we stand before a holy God? That is what Moses begins to reflect on. And, and as we read his words, we should begin to reflect upon those truths. Our mortality and our sinfulness. And I pray that they would transform our hearts as we, as we meditate upon them. And that we would then begin to mimic the prayer of Moses at the end of this psalm. So the first part of the psalm is going to be him reflecting on spiritual truth. And the latter part of the psalm is going to be him crying out to God based upon what he's been thinking. His thoughts have weighed heavily and then his thoughts move him to pray to God. What's amazing, this... This prayer, this psalm that was written 3,500 years ago, still resonates within each of us today. And for years and years, this psalm was read at funerals, along with 1 Corinthians 15, which is about the resurrection. But this is intended to, to get us to think. And this, this first part of the psalm, the first 11 verses, you could say, is how we should reflect upon 
the brevity of life. And in this section, Moses is going to think deeply about, as I said, God, man, and time. And in the 17 verses of this psalm, he's going to use words for time, whether it would be our days, our years. He's going to use, in those 17 verses, the words for time 24 times. It's always going to be in the background. And he's going to compare the eternal God with mortal man. And in these first 11 verses, you can kind of divide it further into three different reflections. His first reflection in verses 1 and 2 is going to be on the eternal, eternality of God. Look with me at those verses. Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, Moses begins his reflections on the, on the character and nature of God. God didn't have a beginning. Before the mountains existed, and I can think of nothing more steadfast and immovable in this world than mountains. He says, God, before those mountains existed, you existed. Because you made the mountains. You were from everlasting to everlasting. That is where his thoughts begin. And think about just what he says there, that... Lord, you have been our dwelling place. What does he mean by that? Also, going back to, again, if the context of this psalm is Numbers chapter 20, then Moses is is writing this for himself and for the nation of Israel that's been wandering the desert. Now, when you wander in the desert, what type of home do you have? A tent. (laughs) One that you can pack up easily and move to some other location. And what does he say? He says, that every generation has dwelled in God. And it echoes Moses' words to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. He says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. What he, Moses is saying is that every generation of believers finds their home, finds their dwelling in the Lord. So before he even mentions the brevity of life, Moses is already giving us the solution to it. He's already giving us hope. Even though he's going he's to speak about man's mortality, that we're like grass that, that shoots up really fast and then withers away, he's already giving us the solution. The solution to the brevity of our life is the eternality of God. That he is the one who we are able to find our dwelling and our abode in. That we are to look to him in faith and find our security and stability in a life that goes by so fast. That is what we see here. One pastor says, This opening of the psalm corresponds to the close in that God is seen here as our God, whose eternity is the answer, not simply the antithesis to our homelessness and our brevity of life. The fact that God is eternal gives hope to us who are not. Because we can look to Him in faith and cry out to Him for security, comfort, and hope. And after contemplating the eternality of God, Moses then turns his thoughts to himself and to all men. He moves from the eternality of God to the mortality of man in verses 3 through 6. Read those with me. 
It says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. What we see is, as Moses turns his reflection to himself and to all men, we see him begin with, with God's words to man. He says, you, speaking of God, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. See, what he's pointing back to is, is Genesis 3, something that Moses himself wrote under the direction of God. Or Genesis uh, chapter, yeah, chapter 3, uh, under, at the curse, when God originally created man out of dust, and part of the curse after Adam and Eve sinned was God saying, to dust you shall return. And Moses quotes that here, saying, hey, we are made out of dust, and we are going to return to dust. And that is what God says to man. Return back from whence you came. And verse 4 shows us that while our lives move forward according to hours and days and years, God is not bound by time. It says a thousand years are as but as yesterday to him, or even just a portion of the night. Second Peter 3.8 alludes to this as Peter writes, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That God is outside of time. He meditates upon this and then in verses 5 and 6 he moves on to to how easily God could sweep man aside. Maybe even alluding to the flood that God brought about in the days of Noah. God is able to do all of that. In the second half of the verse, he says, Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. And Moses isn't just speaking in hyperbole here, because as you look at your grass, you're like, well, my grass doesn't grow overnight and doesn't die overnight. But in this part of the world... In this arid climate, it was common for uh, a nighttime rain to provide enough water for grass to sprout up overnight. wouldn't be high grass, but a, but a small sprouting of grass. But as soon as day came and the heat of that hot desert sun came down upon that grass, it wouldn't survive the day. And the nation of Israel would know it. I understand that. If you're living in the desert for 40 years, you would notice that type of thing. That there is a grass that sprouts up in the morning and is dead by sunset. It is a, a picture that is often used in Scripture to describe man. Isaiah chapter 40 says this. It says, All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
That is what Moses is pointing to, the brevity of our lives and what we are like. And we may not necessarily like that picture. Say, Moses, why couldn't we be oak trees or some other type of tree? Why couldn't we be sequoias or redwoods? No, because we're not like that. We're like grass. Charles Spurgeon gives us a a history of grass. He says, grass is sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. That is something to think about. Uh, Unless the Lord returns in our lifetimes, which he may, unless he does so, we will all at one point face death. I don't say that to be morbid. I don't say it in order to, to depress you, but I say that to alert you to reality. That death comes for us all. It is inescapable, so we must prepare for it. We have to be ready if it is a part of life that we are all coming to. You've, you've often heard it said that only two things in life are certain. What are they? Death and taxes. And uh, my, remember my trigonometry teacher in uh, says a senior in high school, he's like, you don't even have to do that because you don't have to pay taxes. You can go to jail. The only thing you have to do, he said, the only thing you have to do is die. It's the only thing that you have to do in this life. Which is pretty remarkable when you think of it. It's the one thing that we will all have in common, as well as our births, that we will one day die. And, and thoughts about our mortality naturally lead to thoughts about what happens after we die. What happens after we pass from this life? And that is, that is also Moses' flow of thought here. The eternality of God, the mortality of man, and then, wow, what happens when I stand before God? If God's eternal and I'm finite, I'm going to have to stand in front of Him after my mortal life ends. And this is what he begins to discuss in verses 7 through 11, which we could call reflection number 3, the, the morality of man. Read with me, in, beginning in verse 7. It says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And the the, the focus here, as, as Moses writes, is on our standing before God. And the emphasis seems to be that, that we are in trouble with God. That his wrath is upon us. That's the emphasis in verse 7. Where there's a small chiasm and an emphasizing of the middle. Moses works into the anger of God. For we are brought to an end by your anger. And then he works his way back out. By your wrath we are dismayed. And that idea of brought to an end is, is we are consumed, finished, spent. And that idea of that we are dismayed is really the, the idea of being horrified, being overwhelmed 
The word is used elsewhere in, in the book of Judges to describe an army that is facing disaster. That is what we face in the wrath of God. And we face the wrath of God because of the curse of sin and its consequences. Death is a result of the curse. That is why God is angry with us, in case you were wondering. And what's amazing, he moves from the wrath of God in verse 7 to, to verse 8. See, again, why, why is God so upset with us? Because he knows every single one of our sins. God knows the, the full weight of our rebellion against him. Our secret sins are set in his light. He knows all about them. There are no secrets from God. You can't hide something from him as you can from other people. So we should be dismayed when we realize that, that we can't hide. Hebrews chapter 4 picks up this same idea. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of, of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of man. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give account. That is the idea here. Moses continues, verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. What's interesting is that in verse 7, we are told that God's anger brings us to an end. And here in verse 9, we're told that we bring our years to an end. So which is it? What's well, a both end? Because our, our sin results in death. And our sin results in the judgment of God. See, what's being said is that man is mortal because he acts immorally. We die because we have sinned. James Montgomery Boyce says, says this about this passage, a profound commentary. He says, this is, this is an amazing set of statements. Not only has Moses set the weakness of man and the shortness of his life against the grandeur and eternity of God, he has also traced man's mortality to its roots, seeing death as a judgment for sin. We might think that he would contrast man's sin with God's holiness, just as he contrasted man's mortality with God's eternity. Instead, he is trying to show that death is linked to sin and is caused by it. We die because Adam sinned and because we sin ourselves. This is what the reflection that Moses makes, that we are mortal and we are mortal because of our sin. The world around us is constantly preaching to us, constantly bombarding us with, with messages. And one of its most consistent messages, or more accurately, one of its most consistent lies, is that the pursuit of sin will bring life and happiness. Just do whatever you want to do. Do whatever makes you happy. And we tend to love that message. Do you know why? Because we're sinners. We, we love that. And, and sin is appealing for a time, is it not? Sin is always enjoyable in the moment. But what happens after that? 
then the results of sin come to bear. And the lie that the world tells us is that if you sin, you will be happy. But that is the exact opposite. Scripture says if you sin, death comes. Sin destroys everything that it touches. It doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. So we have a conflict resolution class in equipping hour right now. Because sin destroys dreams. It ruins relationships. Holds hostage our health and it eventually kills us body and soul. That is what we are called to reflect upon. Our mortality and the seriousness of our immorality. Verse 10 says that that man will live 70 years. Some of us might even make it to 80 or beyond. But, but those days and years are also soon gone. And some of you, as I, as I look, kind of doing some quick mathematics in your head, calculating how many days, how many years you might have left. It's going to vary for each of us. But what Psalm 90 says, no matter how many years you have left, they're going to go by like that. They're going to go by extremely fast. And then we're going to stand before a holy God. And, and Moses closes this section with a question in verse 11. He says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Or the idea is, as the NASB translates it, the idea, uh, do we look at God according to the fear that he deserves? Do we fear God as we should? It's a powerful question, right? And, I, and that's something that, uh, again, is often tried to, to be softened. It's often something that we don't like to think about. If you're at home this afternoon and you can think about anything in the world, you're probably not going to choose that. You're not going to want to reflect upon the judgment of God that is due to us. You're not going to reflect upon how we should fear a holy God if we are sinners who are mortal and will one day stand before a holy, infinite God. But we have to, to ask that question because Moses asks that question. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The implication of that question is that we should fear God in that way. But do we? Moses gives us a grid for how we are to, to think of God, and that is how we must think of God. It's a sobering thought, and I pray that you are humbled by it. I pray that you begin to think of God in that way. That you conclude that, that you can never rightfully stand before a holy God. That's the conclusion I want you to come to. That's the conclusion that Moses wants you to come to. How can sinful man stand before holy God? He wants us to, to feel the weight of that. And then he begins to shift gears. He begins to, to turn in hope and cry out to God. These are the conclusions that we must come to. That we are finite, that God is holy, and that finite sinful man must stand before God and give account. Sobering thoughts. And as Moses reflects upon all of these things, on the nature of God, man, and the brevity of life, it then turns him in another direction to cry out to God, to pray to God. And in these remaining verses, verses 12 to 17, 
We could call this how we should pray in light of the brevity of life. Once we're convinced of it, now how should we respond? What should we do? I'm not just here to say, you're all going to die and you have no hope. No. We are all going to die and our hope is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. Look with me at verses 12 to, to 17. And there's going to be a, a rapid succession of prayer requests that Moses is going to lift up. Six verses, there's going to be eight requests. Read along with me. He says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What we are going to to see in these prayer requests is the response to the, the first reflections. And Moses' immediate response in verse 12 is to cry out to God for wisdom. Lord, teach us. Teach us to number our days, to count them. It would be sobering if we actually knew how many days that we had to live. If we did uh, a lot of math and figured out, you know, 365, how many years and all of this. If we actually had a, a number of days that we were going to live, how would that change our life? You'd be thinking, well, I have this many days left. So what am I going to do? How am I going to use them? See, it's natural. If we begin to number our days, to consider them as precious and as finite we naturally begin to spend them with greater wisdom. And that is Moses' prayer. Lord, teach us that so that we can get a heart of wisdom, the idea of entering into a heart of wisdom. Wisdom comes by understanding that we are finite, that we are not going to be here on earth forever. So, So teach us to number them. Teach us to live wisely so that we might get a heart of wisdom. That is the first prayer that he lifts up. And then the next two prayers are in verse 13. He says, Return, O Lord. How long? And, and what's interesting, we've already seen that word return. We saw it in verse 3. And in that verse, it was God saying to man, Hey, man, you're going to return to the dust from which I created you. And now Moses is kind of reversing that. He says, God, have mercy. Have pity. How long? You, you, God, return to me. Turn back to me. Have pity and mercy upon your creature. What's amazing is in the, the second part of this psalm, it's going to be a, a prayer against or a prayer for the reversal of the first part. Lord, give us something more than just returning to the dust. But Lord, you return to us and have pity. Feel sorry for us. Don't send us back to the earth. Then we see two more prayers in verses 14 and 15. It says, Satisfy us in the morning 
with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. See, Moses' reflections in the first part of the psalm were that man sprouts up in the morning and then by the next morning he's, he's gone. And now his prayer is for what? Lord, you satisfy us. You satisfy us in the morning. Help us to find our satisfaction in you rather than anything else. Moses picks up that theme and asks again for it to be reversed. Lord, give us satisfaction. Even though our life is fleeting and it goes by quickly, satisfy us and make us glad for the same duration that you've made us sad. I love that in verse 15. Some of you have had some years in your life that have been hard. They've been really tough. And I love this prayer. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we have seen evil. Lord, for as long as we've suffered, give us joy. For as long as we have faced affliction and persecution and difficulty and trials, Lord, now bring us out of that and give us joy. Satisfy us in you. That is Moses' prayer. Then we see the final three prayers in verses 16 and 17. And those final three prayers go together. Moses says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The first prayer in the, of the, these last prayers, Lord, show us your work. Show us your power. And that is his, his desire in verse 16. Why is it he wants to see that? Because verses 3 through 11 shows us the, the finiteness of man. And now as, as Moses prays, Lord, show us what you have done. Show us who you are. Show us your power. What is it that will endure even though man does not? What do we read in, in Isaiah chapter 40? All flesh is like grass, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Where do we find our anchor in this life? Even though we are here, but for a moment, our, our anchor, our stability is in looking to and seeing, beholding who God is and what He has done. That gives us hope and meaning when it feels like our life is just passing by like a vapor. And He prays, He says, Show your work and your power to your servants and to their children. See, God's work and God's blessing are the only thing that you can pass on to others. The only thing that's going to endure beyond your lifetime and beyond your children's lifetime. What God has done. Earlier this year, I saw a, a heartbreaking story of a, of a young couple who sold all of their possessions to purchase a, a 28-foot boat. Uh, and with that boat... Their desire was to, to leave behind their lives and sail around the world. And so they, they were setting out from a marina uh, just outside of Tampa Bay, Florida. 
But two days in, in about 25 miles, the bottom of their boat struck something unseen in the water as they were sailing through a a popular tourist destination. And their boat that they had sold everything to get, everything to obtain, they sold cars and quit jobs and did all of these things. The boat cost about $5,000 to purchase and then another $5,000 to restore. And that boat sank in 20 minutes. The young couple had, had worked and saved and the Coast Guard told them that it would cost about $10,000 for that boat to be raised. And they had $90 to their name. All that they were left with was a dog, their social security cards, a mobile phone, some dog food, and some clothes. You can imagine how devastating that would be. They go all in. They invest everything that they have on this dream. I'm going to sell everything and sail around the world. And it's gone. That's devastating in this life when that happens. How much more devastating if we live and obtain all of these things. If we pursue the wrong things. We get all of this and then at the end of our lives it's gone. At the end of our lives it's, it's lost. It's totally worthless. Because it has nothing to do with eternity. Nothing to to pass on. Nothing that will go beyond your lifetime. It's devastating in this life, let alone in the spiritual matters of eternity. Moses' prayer here shows us how we should pray in light of the brevity of our lives. When we think about how short our lives are, we should be prompted to pray as Moses did. Lord, teach us to number our days. Help us to, to live wisely and to pursue things that will matter for eternity rather than just for the here and now. And what's amazing in these, in these prayer requests that, that Moses has, and I kind of broke them down into to four categories. Prayers for wisdom, prayers for mercy, prayer for satisfaction and for meaning. Each of those prayers is answered in Christ. Christ is the answer to each one of those. For wisdom, Christ is the source of all wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says, For in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to know what it means to live for the glory of God, if you want to know what it means to number your days, Jesus knew exactly when He was going to die. And how did he live? Accordingly. If you want to know what that looks like, look to Jesus. Moses also prays for mercy. He says, Lord, return, have pity on your servants. Well, mercy is only to be found in Christ Jesus. God extends mercy to all who believe in his Son, Titus 3 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. If we want mercy, if we're going to echo that prayer of Moses, we look 
for mercy in the person of Jesus because that is where it is to be found. Additionally, Moses prays for for satisfaction in this life. And ultimately, satisfaction is not going to be found in things that are fleeting and passing away. Think about even that, that young couple that I mentioned. That boat was able to satisfy them for a time. But could it satisfy them perfectly? No. And could that boat be taken away from them? Like, yeah, it was. Easily. True satisfaction is only to be found in Christ. And when our satisfaction is found in Him, nothing can remove it. And if we don't have anything else, we are still satisfied. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul found his satisfaction in Christ. Where is your satisfaction? Alexander McLaren says, The only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart satisfied with the experience of God's love. It's the only thing that will satisfy us with an eternal and perfect satisfaction. Moses prays for wisdom. He prays for mercy. He prays for satisfaction. And ultimately, he's praying for meaning in those final verses. Lord, help us to find meaning in this life, not in ourselves, because we go like that. But Lord, help us to find meaning in who you are and what you have done, your work and your power. That is his prayer. And what we see is that each of those prayers is answered in Christ. Christ is the answer to the brevity of life. He shows us what is eternal, what we should pursue, where we find meaning, where we find our identity and satisfaction. And as we see Moses reflecting upon all of this, he makes his reflections about God and himself, and then he turns to God in prayer. Those are the things that that we ought to pray for and pursue. This is a, a... a natural period of the year where we make New Year's resolutions. Has anybody already broken New Year's resolutions? Made and broken them? And, and this isn't that. This is calling for something much, much grander, much deeper. Christ calls us for resolutions, not just for the new year, but for life. That's what he calls us to. That is what Moses encourages us to. There's a famous cathedral in Europe It's known for this uh, three arched doorways that it has that that lead from the vestibule into uh, the sanctuary. And over the the right entrance, these, these words are carved into the marbled archway. It says, all that pleases is but for a moment. And over the, the left entrance, leading worshipers into the sanctuary, are chiseled these words. All that troubles is but for a moment. All that pleases is but for a moment. All that troubles is but for a moment. And the middle archway has this chiseled. It says, all that is important is eternal. 
The message is clear for everybody who walks into that church, everybody who walks into that sanctuary, what they should be pursuing. Not those things that are fleeting and passing away, but those things that will matter for all of eternity. Even just imagine if we began to think about those things, of what we do each and every day. Well, just asking, will this matter a year from now? What I'm doing right now, will it matter? Will it matter 10 years from now or 20, 500, 1,000? Is it going to matter next week? Sometimes we, we spend our time on, on frivolous things. But here's something to keep in mind, and I think Moses already understood it, and he would have echoed and given a hearty amen to the words of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will, be, will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul's encouraging us to, to build with those eternal things. And then I would, I would close with this, just because I love to quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, We come and go... But the Lord's work abides. We are content to die so long as Jesus lives and his kingdom grows. Since the Lord abides forever the same, we trust our work in his hands and feel that since it is far more his work than ours, he will secure it immortality. When we have withered like grass, our holy service, like gold, silver, and precious stones, will survive the fire. May we resolve to that this year and beyond. May we invest our time, our talents, our treasures, not in those things that, that won't matter later today, won't matter later this week, won't matter a year from now. May we invest in those things that will matter for all of eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Holy God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for every generation. You are from everlasting to everlasting. And Lord, we are but grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. In the grand scheme of things, our life is but a vapor. Lord, we have come face to face with our mortality this morning. We see that our lives will someday come to an end. And we will move on 
into eternity, standing face to face before you, a holy God. So, Lord, we come to you asking for mercy, that you would have pity on your servants, that you would show us mercy and grace, not because we deserve it, but because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done, what he has accomplished on our behalf. Lord, again, we praise you for your plan. We praise your Son that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity so that we might have wisdom and mercy and satisfaction and meaning in this life. Lord, help us to, to number our days to pursue those things that will matter so that when we stand before you for rewards that we will be found faithful. Lord, we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So transform our eyes and our minds and our hearts so that we see what really matters, so that we desire it and so that we begin to act upon those things rather than those things which are fleeting and passing by. Teach us to number our days, Lord that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.